0: In Session with Dr. Fadid Holoqui. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holoqui, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310 441 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Before I get to the uh, books of the week, um, this coming Saturday, September 16th, all around the world, there are uh, protests in support and to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the murder of Massa Amini um, in Los Angeles. I believe it's starting at 2 p.m. Um, but I've seen posts for different protests all over the world. So I hope you will find the one closest to you. Actually, I think it's 1 p.m. I've heard, I saw one and two. Please check uh, online as the date gets closer. Um, but meeting in downtown City Hall, 200 North Spring Street, This coming Saturday, September 16th. The flyer I'm looking at right now says 1 p.m. But again, I hope you'll check and get there early. And of course, that's if you're in the Los Angeles area. But wherever you are, I hope you'll find uh, the protest nearest you as we uh, commemorate the one-year anniversary of the killing of Masa Amini and continue our support for uh, our brothers and sisters in Iran. Um, Now moving on to the... Uh, Books of the week, and actually, I wanted to find a book that might be in some some way relevant or um, related to this one-year anniversary. And so, I, I'm going to be reading the book *Roots in Iran: Stories of Visionary Women* by Yasmin Mahdavi. *Roots in Iran: Stories of Visionary Women* by Yasmin Mahdavi. Looking forward to uh, reading that and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is also relevant because it's called On Disobedience by Eric Fromm, On Disobedience. And uh, Eric Fromm is a thinker that I greatly appreciate. His book, The Art of Loving, I usually say it's my favorite book. I've read many since then that I also like, but still it's definitely one of my favorites, if still not uh, a favorite, so I, I hope you've re- re- read that one. And I saw this book, um, which is a collection of a few essays of his, which are related to this theme of uh, of disobedience, and they're mostly from the '60s. I think all of them were written in the '60s, and it's four different essays where he discusses issues related to disobedience and also um, what he sees as his vision. For society, um, what he describes or calls humanist socialism um, in the last essay, which is the longest essay in this book. So, the first essay looks at uh, disobedience, and it's called Disobedience as a Psychological and Moral Problem. And as he says early in the book, human history began with an act of disobedience and it is not unlikely that it will be terminated by an act of obedience and so uh, he goes on to explain that uh, original sin adam and eve that was an act of disobedience or the story of prometheus that he stole fire from the gods these were acts of disobedience and sometimes they're looked at as sin or crime but actually he's saying these were signs that this was necessary for Uh, human civilization or society or human history to begin so they actually were not bad things Um, and then also that he's writing this in early 1960s the threat of nuclear war which has not gone away but because the second world war had only been over for maybe 15 or so years when he wrote this the threat was even more on people's minds maybe we should not forget it Um, but even more on people's minds and the cold war was um, in full force so this sense that through obedience if people just allow things to go as they are and accept things the way that they are um, as he says human history could be terminated because of this obedience and so when things are immoral or unjust or go against humanity um, it is not even just good but necessary to be disobedient and in this first chapter he explains more about um what disobedience means and what it is and isn't because sometimes we might just think well if i go against the crowd or i go against the norm and i'm a contrarian that's a good thing that means i'm uh, i'm a i'm strong but as he says either way if you always obey or disobey that's not a good thing so um, he says if a man can only obey and not disobey he is a slave if he can only disobey and not obey he is a rebel not a revolutionary he acts out of anger disappointment resentment yet not in the same yet not in the name of a conviction or a principle so um, of course we think oh it's so bad to always obey and of course it is but sometimes we see that people disobey, as he puts it, just to say no, not because they actually um, don't agree with what is the status quo or what's going on, but just to be that contrarian or to say no uh, as a rebel, as he says, not a revolutionary who's trying to bring about some kind of positive change, but just to say no. And he says that this is not a good thing and that um, we we don't want to think of this as a, a good sign. It's something you want to move towards to be able to say no, but not just saying no every time. And sometimes people go to that easier solution or another easy solution, uh, either to always say yes or to always say no. Um, He uh, talks about priests and prophets, which I found interesting in the way he defines them. So um, to him, a prophet is someone who uh, announces an idea and it's not necessarily even a new idea. But at the same time lives them this is very important for him that he that a prophet as he's describing actually lives the teaching and he says that the words alone if you just say a message it it doesn't have much of an effect or the words won't change the hearts of people but it is someone who lives by those values those teachings those ideas that's a prophet and that's who can have uh, a bigger impact and of course I think any of us can reflect on that. I did too. I was thinking of on this show, I'm always discussing different ideas, things I might think or believe, um, but am I really living those things that I talk about myself and how important that is? And that's something I do try to keep in mind. uh, I think there's something inauthentic or not genuine if you are saying kind of practice something that I myself don't, or preach something that I don't practice. So I should practice what I preach and making sure that what I share, I do follow or try to live by at times um the things i share will be aspirational for myself um and so i've not necessarily attained that but i did reflect on this that uh, making sure i'm not just saying things and really living by those things um he actually says that a true prophet in this way and again it doesn't have to be religious he just uses that term prophet he says they don't seek power but they avoid it not even the power of being a prophet. It is not that a prophet wishes to be a prophet. In fact, only the false ones have the ambition to become prophets. And I thought that was interesting. So if we see someone who is yearning for that attention or to be seen in that way, they are not a genuine prophet because the genuine prophets don't want that kind of power or attention. They're just doing it because they think it's right, not because they want to get that Um, type of attention i thought that was very uh telling and important and again prophet doesn't have to be religious because i think we have so many prophets these days in politics he talks about that as well also something that we didn't have then things like social media we see so many people claiming to have answers or to have the truth and trying to push that forward but really we see that they're trying to get attention followers fame money sell something rather than genuinely doing it for the right reasons so as he says it's the historical situation which makes prophets not the wish of some men to be prophets so i thought that was quite fascinating and a very insightful um or an insight into what we still see and recognizing those who are seeking truth and goodness or those who are seeking some kind of fame and attention and trying to differentiate between the two and so those are the prophets but then he talks about priests and again priests don't have to be um religious and he says let's let us call the men who make use of the idea the prophets have um, and announce the priests the prophets live their ideas the priests administer them to the people who are attached to the idea so these people will not be living the uh the ideas they were just saying them and trying to make some kind of order, get some kind of power uh, through them. He actually goes on to um, really admire Bertrand Russell for several pages, first uh, talking about him in admirable words, saying that he is what he'd consider this type of a prophet, someone who genuinely is living his beliefs and his ideas by being um, anti-war and promoting peace in ways that he was even arrested and he was protested and marching and lived his ideas fully, um, even when they were potentially unpopular, not waiting to see what the response is, but but going forward uh, because he thought they were true. And I thought that was um, quite nice to see and interesting to see two heavyweight intellectuals um, and Eric Fromm highly admiring and commending Bertrand Russell. And so he quoted him at length in several different Uh, Essays, writings from Bertrand Russell, but uh, just a a, a short snippet. So this is in the book by Eric Fromm, but a quote from Bertrand Russell. uh, Men fear thought more than they fear anything else on earth, more than ruin, more than even death. And I thought that was very powerful. Uh, Men fear thought more than they fear anything else on earth. And this sense that we are often looking for someone to do the thinking for us so that we don't have to uh, deal with the the pressure, the stress, the anxiety of getting it right. And if we just cling to this, uh, in this case, I'll say priest or this person or idea or book or whatever it might be to do the thinking for us, then we just follow it wholeheartedly and don't have to even, in a way, worry about the consequences because we're told if we do it this way, we are always right. And also we're not really responsible for our decision. We've turned it over to something else. And so I thought that was a, a really fascinating quote, um, men fear thought more than anything else, because I've seen, uh, also the ways that people don't want to have to think for themselves, or we're looking for advice. That's black and white with my kids. Should I do this or that? And it's like, you know, the idea is should I always be hard on them or always let them have the way they want it to be. And the truth is it's not going to be black or white where sometimes you might need to give them an extra push or encouragement. Sometimes you might need to hear that they need a break or they need to slow down. Uh, This happens often with uh, parents who have children with anxiety. Okay, my kid doesn't want to go to the party. Should I let them stay home or force them to go? And it's not that black or white. It's going to be much more nuanced. First of all, I generally don't think force will be the right way, but even... Um, You know, the the notion is, should they go or not go? And I think it's much more nuanced than that. And you have to look at the situation, create a conversation and really um, approach it in a different way than just black and white kind of way. So I agree with this notion that people fear thought. They don't want to have to think for themselves because that can be very scary to do. Uh, So he he shares these different ideas about uh, prophets and priests and the ways that we, uh, man, and of course he uses man, to mean humans, um, don't want to do that thinking for themselves. But we have to create a society that allows for the flourishing of human beings. And then he, uh, the last essay, which is I, I think the longest one, is called Humanist Socialism. And in here he expresses his ideas. A vision in a way, at times it's not very detailed. There's some parts that are more detailed, but really it's more the values of what he thinks um, is the ideal type of society. So he says, humanistic socialism is rooted in the conviction of the unity of mankind and the solidarity of all men. It fights any kind of worship of state, nation, or class. The supreme loyalty of man must be to the human race and to the moral principles of humanism. And so, um, he shares that the plights of capitalism and also he shares how socialism or communism, um, of that time really was in some ways capitalism, but with a different name or was still attaching itself to certain capitalistic ideals and that we need something very different. He didn't say it in these words, but I've seen it other places, this notion that, um, the economy should serve the people, not the people serve the economy. And when we have capitalism, we see that people are serving in an economy and that's the only thing that matters is growth Um, and that's the measure of of humanity rather than something much more important which is making sure human beings are given their ability to to flourish and to live their lives he also talks about how uh, the injustice we have where two-thirds this is at that time two-thirds of the human race live in abysmal poverty must be removed Um, and so he talks about how these extremes of wealth and poverty must be erased in this society that everyone should have a freedom to live and so not just a freedom from but also freedom to in the sense that uh, everyone should be able to live to their fullest potential and so uh, it also talks about some things that i have seen in companies i know in sweden probably other countries as well where uh, and it's i think a movement in in all countries, and I hope it becomes that way, that in companies, corporations, everyone is a shareholder that's in the company essentially and has power when it comes to decisions. So it's not just shareholders outside of the company and some a few in the company that make the decisions, but that many of the seats on boards and many of the seats in um, decision making bodies within a corporation uh, include everyone in the corporation, all the workers, clerks, whoever it might be. And so I've seen that actually in practice, but he does share a lot of these principles and ideas. Also um, something I really enjoyed or thought was um, meaningful that we're only going to get to peace, not by uh, armament or fighting. You're not going to create peace by having the biggest guns and then that's going to create peace that doesn't work. Um, So he says, fight against the idea that our security can be gained By armaments the only way to avoid total destruction lies in total disarmament and so um, I think that's very true we're not going to get to peace by fighting or uh, sometimes I think uh, the idea can be if you kill all your enemies then you have peace but that that doesn't work you first of all won't be able to do that but also you'll just create more enemies or different enemies and create a world where that's the way things go Um, and so There were things that were a bit concrete in this last chapter, but uh, mostly it was, to me, values or ideals that you want to keep. And he does talk about how we need people to research and look into how to achieve these things. It won't be easy, and that there will be a transition, but that this is his um, idea or ideal of, of what we should do. And the last sentences are socialism must be radical. To be radical is to go to the root roots and the root is man so it's a humanistic it's um, for the betterment of of humans and for their ability to uh, fully live a life rather than become commodities or means to an end or means to ends for other people so a fascinating book a shorter read but very interesting one uh, which again contains these four essays by eric Fromm. the book is on disobedience by eric Fromm. let's go to a commercial break We'll be right back. Welcome back. So yesterday, September 10th, was National Suicide Prevention Day in the United States, and September is National Suicide Prevention Month. And um, I thought it would be a good time to speak again about suicide because one of the... um, the biggest issues with suicide is that we are afraid to talk about it or uh, don't feel comfortable to talk about it. And so because of that, we avoid it from all aspects. People who are suffering and maybe considering it might feel uncomfortable to to share with loved ones, even professionals that they're feeling that way or you're considering it. And people's uh, loved ones, individuals have a hard time bringing up the conversation or um think it's better not to bring it up and so they at times don't sadly and it could become too late and um most research shows that asking someone if they are suicidal or thinking about suicide doesn't put their that idea into their head that is uh, a common concern that people have they're you know seeing a loved one that's down, depressed, or has been for a while, or they're just opening up to them and they're seeing and sensing some things that might be concerning. But the person might have a fear well, what if I ask about suicide and now the person thinks about it and might do something about it? And really, that um, fortunately, in the sense that you don't need to be afraid to bring it up, but unfortunately, um, in the sense that. When people get very down unfortunately these thoughts can come to people so you're not going to introduce something that they were not aware of if they are there and if they're not um, suicidal and haven't been thinking about it then they they won't be and you're not going to push them towards that so it's obviously not an easy topic um to have even the word suicide and i know it is a triggering word. I, I I know sometimes people do trigger warnings. I've never quite done that, but I know it is a sensitive topic. Um, and even on social media sites, sometimes you can't say the word or the the word in a um, if it's a caption or in subtitles, you'll see it you know modified or a few letters left out because it's obviously something very very intense that we're talking about. So I I understand that, but. My goal always is to, when it comes to topics like this, to talk about it because I know that the taboo and the silence makes people suffer and makes it harder for people to get help. So that's why I do want to have conversations like this, um, where I mention suicide and talk about it as another reminder that it's something that we can talk about and to make us less afraid to do so. Um... You know, you could look up statistics on suicide. Sadly, we lose many, many lives to it every year. And so can. there's misconceptions or we might have misunderstandings about what does that even mean to be suicidal or um, what is the range of things or how does it even work? And so one thing I can share as a therapist, this is something that we have to be always aware of, very, very mindful of. Um, When we discuss confidentiality with any new client and explain to them what we, of course, we want to make sure we keep uh, what they share private, but even that they see us, that's confidential as well, that um, therapist-client relationship. But one of the ways or the limits of confidentiality is that if we see that a client is suicidal and we feel that they are genuinely at risk, we may break confidentiality in a variety of ways from... Calling emergency services to contacting family. If they are under 18, informing parents, potentially you're getting them involved, not in a way to um, kind of in a secretive way. Often it's very uh, much with the client involved because we are concerned for their well being and see so what we are breaking that confidentiality. So as a therapist, we are always mindful of this. And if a client is discussing, um, something, if that relates to suicide, or we sense that they're really down, uh, especially hopelessness is something that we often will look for. It's not the only factor or risk factor or emotional factor that we're concerned about, but it's definitely one of them. Uh, We may, we'll ask about it, you know, and I, I remember hearing from a supervisor that if you don't feel comfortable letting your client go home, then maybe you really want to take it even more seriously. Uh, if they're, you know, if a sense that they are suicidal, so you will ask them because there is a huge range of this, of what we call suicidal ideation or suicidal thinking. It doesn't mean just cause someone has any thought of suicide, they will act on it. We always want to take it seriously, but it doesn't mean that they, uh, are equal just if we hear that word. And actually because of this limit of confidentiality that we share with clients, um, Sometimes a client might fear, oh, I had a thought or something related to suicide, and they're afraid to say it because of this thought that as soon as they mention anything relevant or related to suicide, um, they'll be hospitalized, or we're going to call 911 and um, do something about it. And that's not the case. So I also say that in case you are uh, in therapy or treatment and you ever have thoughts related to suicide, don't be afraid to share them with your therapist. It's actually very important for you to to share them, to be able to address them and work on them. And it's not something that when we say it's a limit, that's why even we say um, if you know the client is suicidal, we may have to break confidentiality. It doesn't mean it's something automatic that anything related to suicide will require some uh, intervention that breaks confidentiality. Uh, so there is a whole range where just sometimes we'll have this thought, we can call it passive suicidal ideation, that it's I almost wish I wasn't alive or I'd be okay if something happened to me. So we can sometimes feel so overwhelmed, so down, a bit hopeless and feeling like we can't face life or facing life feels difficult. And you might notice that you are, um, just thinking about your life in that way, that maybe if I woke, didn't wake up tomorrow, that would be okay or uh, people might be driving, they realize I had the sense that I wasn't as worried about getting in an accident. So the sense of your own life can, can shift how significant or important it feels to stay alive. And that could be, of course, concerning and distressing, but that can be very far away from someone who might actually take an action uh, to take their own life. There is a, a big range there. So that's one range of just thinking about it in some very passive way all the way to being much more serious about having a specific uh, plan in mind, a specific time in mind of how someone is going to do it. There's a big um, range there. And so you as someone who maybe is talking to your friend, you might not know. And the thing to keep in mind is don't feel like the pressure is on you. Another reason I think people avoid asking about suicide is that what if the person says, yes, and now I have to basically save their life. And it's possible that someone is very close to acting on it. And you might have to intervene in an emergency way. Even still, I would recommend you call 911 or call authorities to help in that situation if you felt like it was that imminent. But in general, um, even if it's that not that imminent, know that you're not alone or that you don't have to help them alone. There isn't the sense that uh, you're going to ask them and you have to have the answers that's going to fix it or... Um, you know, solve the situation or the issue. If someone is feeling that way, it's unlikely anything anyone say is going to fix what they're going through. You want to just protect them in that moment. Basically what we're saying is as much as we value freedom and independence, when we are in that state, the person can't make the best decision for themselves. So we are okay intervening on behalf of someone else. That's uh, in essence, what's going on there, and, and it's something that I take seriously because I recognize that you are violating someone's um, right to autonomy in that moment. Possibly, depending on how extreme they are in that case or in that moment. But we believe that it's so much in their best interests, in that sense, black and white, that it's worth uh, acting or intervening. So, don't be concerned that you have to be the one that fixes, and don't do, don't take that on. Sometimes someone will say. Um, I just want you to, to help me. I don't want to talk to anyone else. You know, they open up to a friend or they, they're afraid of their parents or other people finding out for some reason. And it could put you in a tough spot, um, cause you don't want to betray their trust or their confidence, but if you genuinely feel their life is in danger, you may have to in those moments, or you may have to tell them that I'm going to have to do this or get people involved. I'm too concerned about you. I'm too worried about you. I'm not trying to give a script or the wording, but this type of mindset that that's why you would um, intervene. Uh, Some things also be aware of. um, Sometimes when people are suicidal, of course, they can be very down, depressed, feeling hopeless. Uh, Sometimes when they've decided, they can feel at peace. So sometimes you might see someone who's very down, and then all of a sudden they change Uh, they seem more at peace. So if you notice, for example, of course, if they're researching ways to die, that could be concerning, um, withdrawing or saying goodbye to friends, sometimes some kind of more formal way of saying goodbye, writing notes or letters. Um, they might also, we sometimes talk about getting your affairs in order. So they might, you know, Oh, I, I want you to have my, you know, phone, or I want you to have this thing of mine or different things that they own, especially if they're younger, that can be uh, concerning. Um, Those are types of things you might pay attention to. Now, I, I was saying that there could be a sense of calm. Another thing that sadly can happen is some people don't show us that clearly that they are suicidal. So it might not be so obvious. You'll see so many videos I've seen people post. Here was my, you know, whoever it is, loved one. This is one day or two days before they took their life and you see them maybe smiling or joking or doing something fun. And so unfortunately, this is not to make us paranoid that everyone may be suicidal, but to recognize that it isn't always so clear. We don't want to assume if you've heard something from them that they might be. Don't think because you see something else that those, both of those things are incompatible. So not necessarily just with suicide, but I've worked with parents and I share that. I think your teenager might be depressed and they say, Oh no, no. I saw them joking with their friends and laughing the other day. They can't be depressed and uh, depressed people laugh and joke and smile. And, you know, might even be silly in the same day that they're also feeling miserable. Um, Sadly, you see so many comedians that were, that took their own life. Um, I, I remember actually Robin Williams, when he took his life, it was, one of the first years that I was doing my show and it really hit me hard. I remember it was the day I was doing a show. I'm fairly certain it was on a Monday and I remember just being heartbroken you know, to to see that and many people were just so shocked. Someone who brought so much joy and laughter to people's lives but he was himself feeling that way. So this is not to scare us or make us paranoid but to make us aware that to not be uh, think you know just because you've seen someone's being happy or joking that they are definitely not depressed or not suicidal. It it is much more nuanced or complicated than that and complex. So I say this all just to share some information, some thoughts, but more than anything to remind you not to be afraid to say something. Um, the way I usually like to present this is that let's say your loved one is not suicidal and you ask them about it they may be, I don't know, they might laugh at, oh, no, I'm not that bad, or I'm not feeling like that, or just say it in a whatever way, oh, I'm not feeling that way. Um, And the good thing is they likely will be fine. And as I was saying before, you're not introducing the idea to them. So you don't have to worry about some kind of negative. So there's not a big cost there. The other good part about this is that even if they're not at that moment, you've shown them that I'm someone who you can talk to about this. I'm not afraid of this topic. I'm not afraid of that word or this concept or this idea i'm here for that conversation so even if it's not something happening then you've created this bridge that is now available to be available to be crossed hopefully it never will be needed but if it is now it's there i know i can come to you if i'm feeling that way because you've shown me you can handle that conversation you're okay with it so that's even if they're not and of course if they are you could be quite literally saving their life Oftentimes people think, oh, if someone is going to take their life, they're going to do it no matter what. And there are cases where someone might get to a certain point where they won't stop no matter what. That does happen, but it's much more the case that these paths are not so determined, that there's many steps before someone takes their life. You hear some stories of someone walking on a bridge and saying, if one person smiles at me, I won't jump. And then, you know, whatever it is that they experienced. Uh, maybe they did jump because they didn't get that from someone that reassurance some kind of love so don't think that uh, i think that's something we say to let ourselves off the hook again going back to this not having to think that well if someone did it we couldn't have stopped them and if you know they're not going to do it they're not going to do it it's not like that people do have their lives saved by people who intervene in a variety of ways sometimes knowingly sometimes not knowing sometimes um way before they get to that point that they might have been suicidal, sometimes very when they're very close to it. So uh, take that seriously, that it's not just something that's going to be out of our hands completely. We can do something about it. So I hope we will be less afraid to have the conversation about suicide if it ever comes up. Even if you have children, letting them know that about this concept in general, once they get a little bit older, not young kids, I would say, unless it's something that happens in your family, you might have to have conversation with them about what has happened but with teenagers they can't handle this they hear about it they see it in the news or they've maybe even thought about it or know someone who's thought about it Um, to just let them know this is a topic that's hard but we can talk about and that's really uh, my main message here let's not be afraid to talk it can quite literally save someone's life let's go into our last commercial break we'll be right back back. Um, I was talking that yesterday, September 10th, so today is September 11th. And of course in the United States, that's a uh, infamous day now, September 11th, 2001. And so I'm sure you've seen lots, lots of posts about it. I can't believe it's been 22 years. Um, I think it was either last year or the year before recently I shared about my own uh, experience being in New York, not so far away, one city block or so away from the World Trade Center on that horrific day. Um, And so we we can talk a lot about how the world has changed since then. Things like, of course, mundane uh, things like traveling have changed so much by plane. But of course, the way we see the world has changed severely. I saw some videos I hadn't seen in a while of the The planes hitting the towers, Um, the second one was, of course, more covered because by then so many news cameras were covering Um, the the first plane had hit already. But um, I didn't want to focus so much on, there's obviously so much historic things, so many lives were lost. It was very tragic and it also um, led to um, several wars and so a lot happened and changed because of that. And I know in something so historic and affecting so many people and it's so tragic, so many lives were lost to, to make it about myself might not be the best, best approach, but I wanted to make it about my experience because of, um, one aspect of it that I think, um, relates to a lot of our human experience. So, uh, I'll get to that. And as I mentioned, I was there. Uh, we had went, me and my brother, Parham, and our cousin, Pedrom, The three of us had gone to New York for about, I think it was just three nights or so. And I was uh, twenty no 19 years old. Yeah, I was 19 then. And so um, I was in college and went for a few days. Even I remember we went to the World Trade Center. I think it was two days before. I think it must have been September 9th. To just get some snacks and things. There was like a shop on the bottom there. Um, and so that day, I shared a lot about the story last time. So I won't get into that. But it, it was really, obviously, chaotic, stressful. We had to uh, take a ferry to Saturn Island. Didn't have a choice. You know, so much confusion while it was happening. Even sh- the whole day, um, it was hard to communicate with, with others. This is 2001, so... Things like the internet were very different. We didn't have internet on our phones or ways to check what was going on. We were hearing random things. There's a lot of misinformation. Um, Even finding a place to stay. We, I remember, got a hotel room finally late at night. They didn't think they would have enough hotel rooms for, for everyone that was there. But I remember that night having some very violent dreams. I don't remember them. Some of them I remember a bit, but I just remember just intense things like I think people even getting hit by cars, certain things. I'd seen some pretty bad things up close. And so it's not surprising. And what I wanted to bring up, as I said, it is personal, but it's something that I hope we can all relate to is that what I think buffered me from being less hurt, you know, I'm sure it had some impact. These types of experiences can affect us in ways we're not aware of. Um, but at least my my conscious experience and the overt experience Uh, What I think made it, what served as a big buffer was having my brother and my cousin there. And our uh, connection and closeness and that type of social support and love, um, I think had a big impact on making it not as impactful in a negative way. You know, we were stuck in this hotel for a few days. Of course, still so much to be grateful for, but things were a bit scary. There was also you know, sentiment against people who were Middle Eastern. Um, I remember one of the first things I heard when we finally saw, got to a TV was someone who said something like, with some kind of profanities, I don't remember the exact things they said, but basically, let's just bomb the whole Middle East, like kill them all. So there was this strong um, anti-Middle Eastern sentiment and we were three Middle Eastern guys together. So there was some concern there. I remember our parents especially the moms being a little bit worried about that and calling specifically about that to be careful. So there were things that were going on. We didn't know how we were gonna get home and travel, of course, became this very stressful thing. But through all that, I remember we were able to, um, yeah, support one another. You know, even our parents got concerned if we said we were joking that people might think you're happy, but. We weren't, of course, happy, we're very sad, but sometimes in those very dark moments, humor can serve a really good function of just finding ways to be playful with each other, joke, and connect in some way. And so I I know we did that. We were able to try to um, not make light of the situation, but make light of life in general or things that were going on in ways that allowed us to, to be close in that way. And so I'm very grateful to having my brother and my cousin there, it didn't strike me till later. I, I was seeing reports of how many people have PTSD. Some people, there, you know, reports of trauma and PTSD from just being in America, just exposed to what happened. It was very scary uh, seeing the v- images and the videos and then uh, about the people in New York and what percentage and people who were close and seeing different types of percentages of who, who got PTSD, what happened. Of course, we know that people are also very... Uh, resilient when it comes to trauma. Um, but one thing I know for me was this buffer of that social support was so important. And uh, I, I think it was last week on, was it Friday's show, um, I talked about the book Touch Matters by Michael Benisi. And there was this um, theme of several studies where people who were experiencing pain or about to experience pain would, if they were touched by a loved one, there's one study that um, shows this directly that if they are being Um, A a woman is being either alone or holding the hand of a stranger or holding her husband's hand and how they will experience less pain when they're holding their husband's hand. They experience less pain even with the the stranger compared to alone, but even more with that loved one. And so um, it was such a strong and clear indication of something about life that It's never easy and it's never painless. And when hard things and bad things happen to us, nothing takes away that pain. Um, But having loved ones around us, having close connections and relationships that are loving can make the the experience less painful, more tolerable, something that we get through um, when it might feel like we can't. And so uh, we see that we can't take away People's pain almost ever and that's something we have to take out of our mind if we actually want to be there for people we have to be willing to tolerate that when they're going through something no matter what we do they will still be sad afterwards hopefully a little bit less sad maybe just a little bit maybe something even imperceptible but that we won't make life easy but we might make it easier or less hard to get through and so uh, this year when I'm reflecting on 9-11 and there's so many different things that come to mind from just personally being there but of course how it's changed the world and changed so much um, of the global and intercontinental international type of experience of the world Um, reflecting on my own experience and how grateful I am to my brother and cousin for being there and being there together to go through those uh, that that day itself, but then those days afterwards that I think that served as such a strong buffer, I think for all of us, but I of course can speak about my, my own experience. So um, just a reminder to not undervalue that emotional support, that love that we can give to one another. It can literally reduce the pain. It's not going to eliminate it or take it away, but it can actually reduce that physical pain and also that emotional pain that we experience, making life much more meaningful, but also pleasurable, joyful, but also less difficult whenever we, uh, whenever we can. And so I'm just reflecting on that and remembering that, and that, of course, it's not just when tragedy strikes, it's really through everything, the ups and downs of life. We know that the relationships that we have, those are the things that give life the most meaning, the most happiness long term and of course if we combine this with the last segment about suicide it really is those social connections that love that can at times help someone to uh, move away from that feeling of wanting to take their life and to remind us to show love kindness support We talk about how we don't know what strangers are going through so be kind to them but sometimes you don't know what a loved one is going through or how much pain they might be in so i hope you'll treat them with love and kindness and also ask them not just how are you doing in that generic sense but in a genuine way to see how they're doing because sometimes people are going through a whole lot but are afraid to talk or don't want to talk but given the right moment they're just waiting to to break down and to to break open and to share that so uh, grateful to my brother my cousin and all the loved ones i have in my life and hope to be that loved one for them and others in my life as well and hope you can do that for the ones around you too all right that brings us to the end of tonight's show again a reminder this saturday uh, all around the world there are protests um to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the murder of mass so amini please find the one nearest to you and make your voice heard uh you been listening to In Session with Dr. Fayyar Lokri. Big thank you to Ghazaleh here in the studio. Zan Zendegi Azadi.